Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hey there, Tech Stuff listeners. This is Jonathan Strickland, and I've got a request for all of you. Now, Chris and I have decided that we're going to try an experiment. We're doing our first crowdsourced episode of Tech Stuff, and we want to know what your pick is for the worst video game of all time. Now, nominations, you can you can make one nomination. You nominate one game, and you need to tell us the name of the game and the platform it was on. And it can be any platform. It can be an arcade game. It can be a PC, Mac, uh, Xbox, PS3, Nintendo, handheld console. It can be web-based, if you like. But just you let us know what the platform is so we can make sure we count that as the votes. So you can nominate your game either through email, which is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can nominate through Twitter or Facebook. And we're going to put a, a cutoff date on this. I, I want to have the episode go up by the end of September of 2011. So let's say you need to get your nominations in by September 8th, 2011. So if you get those nominations into us, we will make sure we include those in the process and we will have an episode where we give you the worst video games of all time based upon the votes of our listeners. Thanks a lot. Can't wait to hear from you. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland! Yay! You didn't leave a bar of soap when you left me. <laughs> what? You, you don't know that song? No, I... Oh, I'll, in- I'll introduce it to you afterward. Okay. That's the very first line, too, so that makes it very easy to find that song. Uh, we're going to start this off with a little... Google Plus suggestion. This comes from Kyle, who says, you could do a podcast on the history of Texas Instruments. You're right, Kyle. We could do that. And in fact, we shall. Yes. <laughs> this, this was a, this is a challenge. You know, it, it's funny with all these, um, with all these different tech companies with the storied past like we did with IBM and, and now with Texas Instruments, um, you start looking in into their history and wow. Yeah. There's a lot to it. Yeah, especially when, you know, you can't just say, hey, the company started on this date and here's what they did because it's a little more complicated than that. Yep. And um, I, I, I promised uh, Jonathan a vocoder reference and he wasn't ready for this or actually it wasn't vocoder so much as it was autotune we did a podcast on autotune some time ago yes and uh along with the technology for that uh texas instruments also has a similar history because it began as an oil exploration company sort of using seismology in order to detect oil deposits yeah yeah this is really interesting let's uh cast our minds back to 1930, um, there was a company founded by several people, including one Eugene McDermott, and the company was called Geophysical Service Incorporated, or GSI. Mm-hmm. And this company was specialized in uh, using seismology uh methodology and equipment in order to search for oil deposits. So this is a company that would go out, survey an area, uh, attempt to find whether or not any oil may be underneath that particular area, and then a, an oil drilling company would come in and 
and drill for that oil. Yeah, we talked about uh, oil exploration technology in this, um, in another podcast again. Um, and this this also was, uh, I guess, like an early version of the technology we talked about then because uh, what they would do um, would be vibrate the uh, the Earth's surface mm-hmm. by setting off little explosions called shots. Yep. And then what they would do is record and time uh, the sound waves that would reflect back in right. order to get a good idea of where the oil was. Yeah, that would give the time between the impact of the explosion and the echo would give an indication of what the ground below, what it was made of, because sound will travel at different rates through a different medium. Oh, okay, yeah. The echo? Yes. The echo? Yes. The echo? Yes. So yeah, this was back in 1930, which was sort of an auspicious time to be starting a new company. Uh, that was back, of course, uh, you might remember. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not that old. The Great Depression. No, I, I just, I didn't think it was that great. It's kind of a lousy depression. But they did file papers in New Jersey to incorporate the company, uh, Geophysical Service, in May. In May 1930, May 16th specifically. Yeah. Now let's, let's, uh, we could talk more about what they did back then, but let's really get to the interesting part. So let's, uh, let's skip ahead a little bit. Well, I was going to point out that, uh, it, just a couple little short, little interesting facts. You know, Jonathan and I do tend to get off on these weird little tangents. Yeah. Um, Which yeah, I'm, they're I'm trying to hold on to. Yep. <laughs> they're, uh, they actually changed the name of the company in 1939 to Coronando Corporation. Because their competitors were a little concerned uh, that they might be withholding proprietary information. And GSI was uh, – they had gotten into the business of exploring for oil themselves. Yeah. Um, so they were licensing the technology. And a, a, an oil company picked up Coronando Corporation. Um, the uh, com- company actually ended up being Amico, which I think is funny. Just so a weird is, – Isn't Coronando the name of an ABBA song? No. Oh, OK. I'm thinking of something else. Fernando. Yes. Sorry. Um, well, I can hear the drums, however. <laughs> so Eugene McDermott was one of those founders. He was joined by a few other people, including uh, Cecil H. Green and J. Eric Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1941, they bought Geophysical Service Incorporated. Mm-hmm. They, they purchased the company. Uh, yeah, they bought it back from the oil company. I think the next day... There was the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yes, exactly. Uh, I do not suggest – I'm not suggesting in any way that there was any correlation between these two events. Yeah, they, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, it, uh, the the quote from T.I. was that uh, if the financing was not completed and in place with, within 10 days by Monday, December 8th, 1941, yeah. the sale would be terminated or negotiations would be terminated. That was actually the quote from their, their stuff. No, and, so and, that's – in 1945. Fascinating. Yeah, yes. In 1941, they're still doing the same thing that they were doing before. It's just now it's, it's owned by new people. Yep. In 1945, they uh, hire an electrical engineer, um, a, a Patrick Haggerty. Mm-hmm. And Haggerty has, becomes the general manager of a division of Geophysical Service uh, Incorporated called the Laboratory. Look, I said laboratory. I knew I, I was practicing. So I wouldn't say lab, laboratory. Over and over, the laboratory and manufacturing division, so or L and M. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Haggerty had been a lieutenant in the, um, I believe, in the uh, the Navy. A lieutenant, you mean? 
seriously. Actually, yeah, he was the uh, procurement officer for the uh, Magnetic Anomaly Detector Project, and that the MAD project was actually one of uh, Geophysical Services. Um, I did say that right, right? Yes. I, I keep thinking TI. Yes. Uh, that was their one of their contributions to the war effort here in the United States. So he was already working with the company from the military side. So he was already known to them. So he was working on so uh, hired the, him after the, war. the MAD project, right? Yeah. So he had mad skills. So next. All right. Anyway, uh, yeah, he, he joins and L&M, that division starts to get – Lots and lots of business, mainly through military contracts. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, it gets so much business that it starts to dwarf the exploratory business mm-hmm. of GSI. So in 1951, the owners and Haggerty all decide to restructure the company. And, uh, won't be the last time. Nope. But L&M now becomes the major part of the company, and mm-hmm. GSI becomes a division within L&M. So it's the old switcheroo, because before it was the the opposite, right? GSI was in charge, and L&M was a division. Now L&M's on top. Won't be the last time. They rename the company, and they call it General Instruments Incorporated. Uh, General Instruments? Yes. <laughs> yes, um, major malfunction. It was a major disaster, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. General Instruments, the problem, there was one problem, which was that... There was another company, uh, I believe it was on the eastern seaboard, and I think it was a defense contractor that already had that name. So uh, They said, hey, we've got that name. And you yeah. say, why are you so defensive? Right. So in 1952, wow. In 1952 <laughs> uh, the company undergoes a name change to Texas Instruments, or TI for short. I like that name. I think they should stick with it. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, uh, so did they, and they did. So – Getting back to what they were working on uh, before they became TI, but you know, it was essentially the same company that would become TI. Uh, their their contracts included things like building up uh, uh, submarine detection equipment mm-hmm. and uh, and radar uh, controlled bomb sites. So we're talking about some high tech stuff for the the military right now. That's really their main customer at yeah. this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, they had plenty of business because. First, there was the aftermath of uh, World War II, and yeah. then there was the Korean War. And uh, so the war was keeping them going, but they knew that they had to diversify in order to become a successful company. And so they looked into various other industries they could start to uh, make headway into so that they're not just a, a military defense contractor. Mm-hmm. And one of those industries was the burgeoning vacuum tube industry. And we talked about vacuum tubes recently in our theremin podcast. Mm-hmm. So if you want to learn more about vacuum tubes, I recommend you, you listen to that because they're actually, we do a, a quick down and dirty description of what a vacuum tube is and what it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 1948, Something happened that really revolutionized the electronics industry. At, uh, at the time, not everyone saw it as a revolution, yeah. but it would turn out to be the big thing that would that would shape all electronics for that point forward. And that was a uh, a little invention from uh, Bell Laboratories. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it was the transistor. I feel like we've touched on the transistor. Yeah, we've talked about transistors a lot in this podcast. So you can find plenty of other episodes where we talk about what transistors are and what they do. But the 
the introduction of the transistor in 1948 was a pretty big deal. Although, again, not everyone recognized it as such because vacuum tubes did the same thing as transistors. They took up more space. They gave off a lot more heat, but they were, uh, they were a proven technology and the transistor was kind of a prototype and, and no one really saw a way to make it practical from the, the first introduction of it. It was more like a curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of curiosity, if you're interested in learning specifically about transistors, we do have an article on the site, too, by Nathan Chandler about how transistors work. Yes. And uh, if you want to – well, the one person who did recognize that the transistor could be a big deal, besides the people in Bell Laboratories, uh, was Haggerty. And so he wanted to pursue a license from Western Electric – to get the uh, Bell transistor. And at first, their initial requests were denied. And that had to do with a lot of different things. For one, Western Electric supposedly did not see TI as being capable of, or actually at this point still uh, uh, general, uh, it was still mm-hmm. GSI. Right. Uh, but uh, they didn't see GSI as being capable of producing transistors in a, in a manufacturing process. So that was the first reason, but there was also, there was a complicated, uh, relationship with the U.S. military where there were Western Electric's being told by one branch of, of the government, you need to keep the transistor under wraps because, uh, this information, if it got into the hands of unfriendly entities, could be very harmful for us. And then you had another part of the U.S. government saying, you can't sit on this information that's, uh, anti-competitive and it is hurting industry. So you've got to share it. So they were kind of in a tough spot, but eventually they got uh, clearance from the government, Western Electric did, to license the technology of the transistor to any NATO country, any any company within a NATO country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, Texas is in a NATO country because they still haven't declared their independence. So Texas Instrument immediately jumped on that opportunity and secured a license for the princely sum of $25,000. Which was a lot of money in 1952. It's a lot of money right now. It's not as much, though. But yes. And uh, uh, that was secured in 1951. So then we've got uh, the the license that is going to give Texas Instruments its uh, foundation for business for the foreseeable future. And J. Eric Johnson actually said, this is a quote, Finally, we have purchased from the Western Electric Company a license under which we may manufacture transistors and related semiconductor devices. The transistor is a very new development, primarily of Bell Telephone Laboratories, which promises to revolutionize electronics. It is, in a general sort of way, a substitute for the vacuum tube. There is little question, but the transistors and related devices will play an exceedingly important part in our future. That Boy, was howdy. very true. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. And in fact, Bell Laboratories <laughs> held a symposium about transistors because it was such a new technology that even people who were licensing it really had very little knowledge about what what they could do and, and how they were made. Yeah, they jumped right in. In 1953, they were going gangbusters on trying to come up with new technologies. Um, the Semiconductor Products Division was announced uh, or was started in 1953, and they produced the first commercial silicon transistor in 1954. Yep. Also, the first germanium high-frequency transistor. So yeah. they were they started and uh, you know right away. Yeah, and it was it was pretty interesting. I mean, like four of the people. Well, Ti sent four people to that symposium I had mentioned. Mm-hmm. One of them was was Haggerty. 
Uh, and another was a, a fellow named Mark Shepard, who would later on become a, a the, the head of Texas Instruments. Yeah. Uh, and they actually watched a very, very technical presentation from Bell Laboratories. Man, I almost did it again. Bell Labs. They mm-hmm. saw a very technical uh, uh, symposium, and they they synthesized that information, brought it back, and started to really work on things. Uh, they had to create a thing, a device called a crystal puller, mm-hmm. because at the heart of the transistor is the, the the earliest ones they were using was were germanium crystals, and in order to create the germanium crystals, the the wafers that they they would use as the foundation for these uh, these transistors, they used a crystal puller. And what a crystal puller is is essentially there's a um there's a crucible where mm-hmm. you melt germanium, and then what you do is you insert a uh, pure germanium crystal seed, and you put that into the molten germanium mix, and you start rotating the seed and slowly withdrawing it from the mix, and you will start to create a uh, a crystal, essentially like a, a crystal rod. Um, but you, it's a very exact process and you also will have to introduce certain impurities into the mix in order to dope the material uh, we've talked about doping semiconductors before and if you haven't if you're not familiar with that you should probably listen to some of our other episodes but in general uh, what makes a semiconductor a semiconductor is the doping process because a pure uh, semiconductor would not really conduct electricity yo that semiconductor is dope wow we are just insane today anyway uh, so the crystal puller was a pretty cool thing. You can actually find some neat illustrations and pictures online of these crystal pullers, and and they're kind of medieval looking. Yeah, fascinating though. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So, as Chris was saying, they started to introduce transistors. The first two they tra- they introduced never really took off. It was the Type 100 and Type 101. Mm-hmm. And the reason they never really took off is they, the Texas Instruments discovered there was a, a manufacturing problem. And so they discontinued them pretty quickly, like with it less than a year after they had introduced them. But in 1953, uh, that's it's September 1953, they introduced Types 102 and 103. Mm-hmm. Now, what I find interesting about these two types of transistors, and we're not going to talk about every single transistor TI produced because that would that would take – 50, Several podcasts. 50 podcasts easily. But types 102 and 103 are interesting to me in particular because uh, of a fellow named D.D. Mac McBride. Mm-hmm. So McBride actually manufactured these transistors. He, he put them together by hand. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a time-consuming process at all. Yeah, he would have to look through a microscope and lay out the transistor by hand and uh, – Using this method, he could produce about 30 transistors every two days, so averaging 15 a day. Uh, not the most efficient process. Also, there was no guarantee that any two transistors would have the exact same properties. They might have very similar properties, but the crystal pulling technique was not so exact as to produce uh, perfect replicas. So, right. yeah, you you could have you would have a type 102 or a type 103 transistor. You might not necessarily have set out to make a 102 versus a 103. You were making a transistor, and then after you made it, you would test the transistor to see what properties it had, and then you would categorize it as either a 102 or 103. 
seems like they should come up with a process for making that faster and more reliable. Well, they did, but it took a while. Uh, they also they also experimented with other transistor materials. There was a uh, something called a grown junction transistor, mm-hmm. um, and you know they were mostly using germanium still at this point. But they did start to experiment with silicon. In fact, Texas Instruments was one of the first companies to do that. Although there are disputes, disputed reports about other companies that were working on it around the same time, possibly earlier. What isn't under any sort of uh, uh, dispute is that Texas Instrument launched the first commercial silicon-based transistor. Texas Instruments did do that, although other companies were working on it at the same time. Yeah, they did. They bought some uh, silicon material from DuPont, um, the chemical giant, and yep. uh, grew a crystal from that. Um, apparently, it was ready to go on April 14th, 1954. Um, and then they announced on May 10th of that year the uh, the availability of grown junction silicon transistors. Yeah. And around around that same time, you, you might be asking, OK, well, they're building all these transistors. Who are they building them for? Well, that's that's kind of what Texas Instruments had to ask because uh, there was such a new technology. No one had really yeah. figured out how to incorporate it. Uh, and Texas Instruments had to take it upon itself to teach the world what the transistors could do and how they could be used, which to me actually reminds me of a lot of modern day electronics companies where they'll produce a new device that doesn't seemingly have a a, a space to fill. Right. Yeah. But it can't show it uh, show off the technology. Right. But I'm thinking right now specifically mm-hmm. of the iPad. Right. Because th- you have the iPad where it was this th- this device that doesn't really fill a gap. Like there's not like a space in technology where you'd say, oh, I was missing this. And then the iPad came along and that fills that gap. It doesn't mean that the iPad's not useful and it doesn't mean that it's not a great device. It just means that Apple had this uphill battle. They had to prove that you want you. There would be reasons to want one. Mm-hmm. And they did prove that and they were successful at it. Well, Texas Instrument had the same problem. Yeah, they had to prove that the transistor was something you would want and when I say you, I'm talking about other companies here, companies that yeah. produce other stuff, because Texas Instruments customers were all other companies, right? not consumers. Uh, so first, they struck up a uh, relationship with the Sonatone Corporation making transistors for hearing aids. Yeah. What? Yeah. But the problem, as I mentioned before, that hearing aids, uh, hearing aids need a very sort of precise uh, uh electronic circuitry in order to work properly, clearly, in order for the, the, the sound that you hear to be in the right range for human hearing. Otherwise, mm-hmm. of course, you're not really helping out. It's not a hearing aid. It's a, it's a hearing detriment. So that was a challenge because, like I said, the transistors that they were producing didn't all have identical properties. So they'd have to play with those quite a bit in order to get it to work properly. But uh, they Haggerty saw the opportunity to go after uh, the market by making something specific that would ch- demonstrate the usefulness of transistors. Mm-hmm. And that was the transistor radio. Yes, the Regency radio, the TR1. Yeah, which became a huge collector's uh, item. Yep, October but, 18th, 1954. Yep. And and that was I mean it was a pretty revolutionary product. Here we had a radio that used transistors in the in place of vacuum tubes more or less which meant it was a much smaller product than the vacuum tube based radios 
And, uh, you know, that it took a lot of work on, on TI's part to build a transistor radio that had transistors, uh, with the right kind of frequencies to, to actually pick up radio frequencies. It, it was, it was a, a lot of, of, uh, research and development that went into this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know how much they cost when they launched? No. I don't actually. I didn't have that part. $49.90, which Haggerty later said might have been a serious mistake because oh. they had poured so much money. TI had poured so much money in, into research and development and, and manufacturing to create the the uh, radio mm-hmm. that it was a lot harder to recapture those expenses through the sale of the radio. For one thing, I think they were building the radio as a proof of concept right. and didn't realize how – popular it was going to be mm-hmm. and that they could have charged more money and sold just as many units. Uh, so they said that uh, – actually, Haggerty said the facts are that at $60 or $65, it wouldn't have made an iota of difference, meaning that people would have bought it just as, uh, just as many. And so that was uh, one of TI's uh, mistakes in a way. It was incredibly successful, but they, they failed to capitalize on its success at the rate that they could have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this is, uh, it's funny. We're 23 minutes in. We're still in the 1950s. Yeah. We're going to have to speed up. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not going to happen with 1958 because, um, then we start talking about uh, an inventor who was on the payroll at Texas Instruments. But, uh, you know, there was an annual two week company wide vacation that everyone had, but, well, most people had, but new employees didn't, uh, not if they hadn't accrued vacation time. So somebody who was still putting around, puttering around the office during this company-wide vacation, uh, a guy named Jack Kilby. Jack St. Clair Kilby, six foot six inches tall, eats Redwoods for breakfast. Bats left, throws right. No, yeah. I... <laughs> Kilby uh, was a mountain of a man. Wait, what? Anyway, six foot six inches tall is much taller than I am. Well, yeah, I agree, but I just wasn't expecting that. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was, he was looking for, uh, a way to miniaturize circuits. And he figured out that a semiconductor, uh, would make things more cost effective. Yeah, a wafer semiconductor where you would build the circuit elements directly onto the wafer. Huh. Yeah. That seems like a, a reasonably decent idea. Yeah. We call this na- this idea now the integrated circuit. And Kilby was the first person to produce such a circuit. It was, a revo- again, another revolutionary idea. So the transistor, <laughs> if, uh, if you call the transistor the basis of modern electronics, the integrated circuit f- fills a role in pretty much every electronic device you can think of. So – Modern day computers would not really exist without the integrated circuit. Not, not as we know them now. Uh, calculators, v- video game consoles, microwaves, like tons of things out there rely on integrated circuits. Yeah, I believe the, uh, the sketches that he made in his notebook survive still in TI, uh, with, with their, uh, uh, company somewhere. I'm pretty sure because I, there's actually a picture of him on the TI website holding up the notebook. He actually delivered a, they had him, uh, wire up a circuit and bring it in, uh, you know, to demonstrate. And he did that on August 28th of 1958. They said, yeah, okay, it, it looks like it'll work. Go ahead and, and, uh, put it together. 
you know, let, let's make a few of these and see what happens. Yeah. And yeah, he, he demonstrated it, uh, and he demonstrated actually working on September 12th. Mm-hmm. And, um, apparently he, he has said, uh, after that, he said that, um, he would have prettied it up a little if he had known that that was going to be held up as the <laughs> first integrated circuit. He, he kind of, uh, you know, as an engineer, he was building something that would work first. So it's not the, uh, not the most elegant design, but it, not at least from an aesthetic point of view, but from an actual engineering point of view, it's remarkable. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And he would be honored many, 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 many times. Yes. So, um, and around this time, uh, it's interesting. You see some other stuff that was going on right around the same time that the integrated circuits being developed. Uh, TI landed some major supply contracts with another company that we've mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, at IBM. Yes. Which, uh, was a big deal. And also, uh, TI tried to show the, the, uh, well, the, the potential for a transistor-based portable television. Mm-hmm. They actually went out, bought a portable TV that, that existed using vacuum tubes, stripped it out, rebuilt it using transistors, and demonstrated it. Although uh, the television manufacturers didn't really jump on board with that because they didn't think that the world was ready for such a thing. Yep. And now our, our, uh, a brief episode of our show within a show, Stuff What Goes Beep. Yeah. Uh, October 4th, 1957, of course, Sputnik was launched into space. But in, in 1958, uh, the United States launched Explorer 1, which had TI transistors on board to help it go beep. Yep. And uh, discover the magnetic radiation belt around the Earth. That's all it did. Yeah. No, no big whoop. Right. <laughs> but yeah. it was only doing science in space. <laughs> Uh, good stuff. Yeah. So I think, uh, well, we're, we're coming up on what, 28 minutes now? Yeah, we're coming up on 28 minutes and we've got a ton of stuff to talk about. So we do I our... think, uh, I think we do a part one and a part two. How about you? Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. All right. Cool. So we're gonna, we're gonna stop here in, uh, it's 1958, isn't it? Uh, I think so. All right. So we're gonna stop in 1958 and we will pick up where we left off in our next episode, Texas Instruments part two. So guys, uh, if you want to hear more about other companies, you know, we've talked about IBM and we've talked about Texas Instruments and we're gonna continue to do that. But if you want to hear about other companies, let us know. You can send us an email. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again about Texas Instruments really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?